Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series celebrating our freedom in Christ today as we talk about a message entitled, Idolatry is Not Freedom. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder if you've ever met someone whom we call a two-timer. A two-timer is a person who's unfaithful to his wife or, in the case of a woman, is unfaithful to her husband. A two-timer is someone who's seeing two people at the same time and, in the process, does not just deceive one of them but, in effect, deceives both of them. That's because even in the case of a mistress who is aware of the wife of her lover, She often harbors hope in her heart that he doesn't really love his wife, but has no choice but to remain with her. I mean, either for the kids or because of family connections or because of something. She often feels that if those conditions were somehow removed, her lover would then openly express his affection for her, and then he'd become a one-timer. But of course, it's a lie. A two-timer is a deceiver and will continue to deceive as long as he can so that he can carry on two relationships and be faithful to none. You know, in the Bible, idolatry is sometimes defined in terms of adultery. Israel has been betrothed to God, but she's been carrying on an adulterous relationship with idols. And God is not mocked, and God is a jealous God. And God simply will not stand for two-timers when it comes to worship and adoration. Now, we've been studying 1 Corinthians 8 to 11, which is a passage discussing Christian freedom. At some point in time, the Corinthian church wrote the Apostle Paul a letter containing a number of questions. And one of those questions had to do with whether or not they were free to eat in idols' temples. And at first, it almost seems as if Paul says, yeah, it's okay. After all, he affirms an idol really is nothing at all. And as long as you understand that, you're free to eat there, for you're not worshiping there. But just when we think we understand that, we begin to realize that we really don't yet know as we ought to know. Freedom for Christians is never the freedom to do what you want for your own reasons. Freedom is the power to do all things for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. And if we're free from all things, we are then radically free to give up anything for the sake of the gospel. Nothing holds us anymore. We're free. Look at it this way. Imagine a person who has a large debt on their house, and then they have a car loan, and then a loan on the furniture in their house, and then on top of that, they have credit card debt that they're unable to pay back. Now, that person might argue they've exercised their free choice in regard to each one of those loans, and that would indeed be true. They were free to take debt upon themselves. But it's equally true that they're no longer free. I mean, from now on, the borrower is a slave to the lender. The borrower is no longer free to pursue his or her wishes and desires. The bank has a lot to say about that. And so all manner of free choices lead to slavery. You need to be careful about how you choose, and that's the principle. And when it comes to idolatry, you might freely choose it, but it will take away your freedom, and you'll become enslaved to the idol. Now, Paul has conceded that idols are nothing and that a Christian might be free to eat in an idol's temple, but he immediately asks the question, 
What of the weaker brother whose conscience is scandalized by your behavior? I mean, just how are you using your freedom? What are the long-term consequences of your free choices? But now in today's message, Paul is about to take this issue to a completely new level. You know, he has argued that in the last section that the Christian who wants to remain free should be careful about what they desire. Do not desire evil, he says. And with that, Paul is now ready to discuss the nature of idolatry. You know, yes, idols are nothing, and yet there is a power behind the idea of idolatry that all Christians will want to know about. Idolatry really is all about what you desire. Now, Paul is going to tell the Corinthian Christians three things about idolatry. First, he tells them how to respond to idols. And then second, because of the danger of idolatry, he tells them how they must respond to God. And third, because of what idolatry is, he tells them how to respond to demons. Okay, let's take it one step at a time. First, how should believers in Jesus, those who have been set free in Christ, respond to idols? So let's read 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 15. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, I find this a fascinating passage. Back in chapter 8, Paul is addressing those who said, I'm not like the weak. I, I have knowledge, and I know an idol is nothing but a piece of stone. Now, since I know that, I'm strong. I can eat in an idol's temple and not even be tempted to worship idols. It's the weak, those who have not yet been able to incorporate what the gospel teaches into their experience. These are the people that need to stay away from idols, but I'm strong and I can go anytime I want, I am free. But now Paul is speaking not about stone statues, but idolatry, which is the worshiping of that which is not the true God. See, don't imagine that you're immune from that temptation. Run away from it, much like Joseph ran away from the seductiveness of Potiphar's wife. Don't assume that you're strong enough to resist the temptation of idolatry. You need to flee from it. And so Paul adds, I speak to sensible people. You know, before the Corinthians were concerned about who was strong and who was weak, now Paul changes the categories for them. It's, it's really all about who's wise and who's foolish. See, those who are wise flee from idols. It's the sensible thing to do. Now, some of us might wonder what that might mean. Were all the Christians in Corinth being tempted to worship in idols' temples? No, I don't think that's what he's saying, and I don't think it's what it means. So let me try to clear away what an idol is. Yes, it may be a stone statue, but it might be something else. Essentially anything, whether it's an object or an idea or a philosophy or a lifestyle, anything that you can't live without, well, that's an idol. Idolatry takes many forms. Consider Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, says Paul, idolatry. Now, apparently, all of those things, sexual immorality, covetousness, and so forth, anything can constitute idolatry. Why is that? Because all of those things are more important than God, that is, in the people who practice them. And anything in your life which is more important than God is an idol. Let me say it again. Anything in your life that is more important than God, anything you can't give up for the sake of the gospel is an idol. You, in your heart, worship that thing which is ultimate. 
You know, if money's ultimate, it's your idol. If sex, if a hobby, I mean, you name it, anything can be an idol. An idol is that thing that you can't live without. It's that thing that you could never give up. And so that puts a whole new spin on everything. Yes, that idol made of stone is nothing, but things that compete with our devotion to God is everywhere. And why would I want to hang out in a temple in which the entire thing is devoted to things that are meant to replace God? Okay, that's the first consideration. How should we respond to idols? Now, if we have any sense in our heads and in our hearts, we should run away from them as fast as Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife. Now, second, in the light of the fact that we live in a world filled with idols, how should we respond to God? Well, we should respond to God with undivided loyalty. So let's read verses 16 to 18. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Now, before we get into the overall meaning of this passage, let's consider the details. The cup of blessing that Paul mentions, a cup that all believers participate in together, refers to the cup of the Lord's table. It's called the cup of blessing because when Jesus instituted the Lord's table, you'll remember that the disciples were celebrating the Jewish Passover. And there are four cups that are drunk during the Passover, and it would seem that when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he was holding up the third cup of Passover, which is called the cup of blessing. Now, that's meaningful to all believers because the new covenant in the blood of Christ is the supreme blessing. Indeed, each time we drink the cup at communion, we are thankful for Christ's death on our behalf that our sins are forgiven in the gospel, and it's symbolized in that cup. Now then, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, or another translation says, we give thanks for the cup of blessing. When the church celebrates communion, what rises among God's people is profound gratefulness for what the cup symbolizes. But this is key, and I hope you can see it. There is a great difference between the meal of the Lord's table and the meal that's being offered in idols' temples. We're so grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple of recent notes. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith, and for me, you're an essential service. Please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that instead of living in confusion, Canadians from all generations coast to coast can grow in faith understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month, we want to send you as our free gift Dr. John's brand new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he first gave thanks to his Father. When Jesus instituted the Lord's table, he gave thanks and then broke the bread. 
And in every generation, when Christians celebrate the Lord's table, we together in some fashion say, we participate in the body of Christ. Now, some of you may be aware that there continues to be an ongoing debate in the church about the exact nature of the Lord's table. There are those who call it a sacrament, in which they argue that sharing in communion in some mystical fashion imparts grace to those who celebrate it, that act itself brings grace. And then there are those who argue that we should call the Lord's table an ordinance, meaning that from their perspective, the only meaning in celebrating the Lord's table is a symbolic one. The bread symbolizes his broken body, the cup, symbolizes his shed blood. In other words, for them, the Lord's table does not impart grace, but it reminds them of grace, the grace that came through Christ's death on the cross on their behalf. Now, I'm not going to settle that matter here, but I do notice Paul mentions that by eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are in some fashion actually participating in the body and blood of Christ. The word he uses to participate is also in a number of other Bible passages translated as to fellowship. In the Greek, it's the word koinonia. I think what Paul has in mind here is that the experience of communion is for the church a profound celebration of a common spiritual experience. Now, while I'm not going to go so far as to say that communion imparts grace, I sometimes think that we've not gone far enough when we merely call it a symbol. When a church meets together to celebrate the Lord's table, we all of us together are richly moved into a spiritual experience that's very difficult to quantify. You know, I think the best that I can do is to simply say it the way that Paul does. Every time God's people celebrate the Lord's table, they in some fashion together, that is the whole church, fellowship in Christ's sufferings in a way that nothing else can, in a way that is intimate and profoundly spiritual. You know, perhaps it is right that we, the church, have never quite been able to understand this mystery fully, but we can all say that all believers long for such a mystical union with Christ. Now, from that deep mystery, Paul draws a parallel to the Old Testament worshiper. He says that those Old Testament worshipers also were participants in the altar. We know that the Old Testament law made it very clear as to who ate what at the temple sacrifices, that is, those things eaten by priests and those things to be burned in the fire and those things to be eaten by the worshiper. See, in a sense, the altar in the Old Testament served a number of functions, including an annual reminder of sin, a foretaste of Christ's final sacrifice, and so forth. But one of the things it also served as was fellowship with God. See, look at it this way. What's the best place to enjoy friendship? Is it not around the table? I mean, we talk, we eat, we enjoy richness. In essence, whether it was the Old Testament sacrifice or the New Testament experience of communion, we're fellowshipping with God, enjoying the richness of friendship, having by grace been invited to his table. Now imagine for a moment a two-timer. It's mealtime in his home. His wife's at one end of the table, he's at the other. The, the children surround the table. It's the evening meal and everyone has something to say. How, how their day went, what happened at school, what they think about politics, what dreams they have for the future. I mean, there's laughter, sometimes there's arguments, but there's acceptance. They're a family. But this two-timer will have a meal just like that the next night with his mistress who also has a family, and he'll do the same thing with them. Is that not a scandal? Of course it is. And that, says Paul, is the point. 
if you participate or fellowship around the table of the Lord, would you then participate or fellowship around the table of the temple of idols? Do you think that our God, to whom we were brought into union with, through the death of Christ our Lord, would he not rise from his table in anger for such an outrage? Indeed, that's exactly the point here. For those who took their relationship with meals at the idol's temple in a cavalier fashion, it's clear that they've never asked themselves which table they belong to. And the symbolism of the two-timer is everywhere present. And so we've asked and answered two questions. How should we respond to idolatry? Well, we should run away, fleeing all association with idols. And second, how should we respond to God? With ultimate loyalty, knowing that he is seated at a table that is exclusive, there is no room for another table. And so we should know that while, on the one hand, stone images of idols are nothing, and believers can exercise freedom about where they're going to eat, yet on the other hand, we want to use our freedom to publicly declare our loyalty to God. And when we first started this series, I made mention of once being invited to a restaurant, which I had noticed an idol at the doorway. The restaurant and the food in it had been dedicated to an idol. I mentioned that to the friend that invited me there. If we could move to another restaurant, I was as gentle as I knew how to be. I didn't want to offend him, but I did want to make it clear that I did not think that I, in my conscience, could sit at the Lord's table and at the table of idols. And with this comes the question of the demonic. To what extent are idols and demons connected? So let's continue to read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 to 22. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So let's attend to the central issue here. Demons are the spiritual force behind all idolatry. Whether it was the temple dedicated to Zeus or to Epaphrodite or to Poseidon, all these so-called gods are a kind of God after all. They are a spiritual force of idolatry. Now, the Old Testament law mentions demons on two occasions. The first is found in Leviticus 17, verse 3 and 4 says, if anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt will be imputed to that man. See, what's forbidden here is worshiping God in any other way than the way that he has dictated. You worship God in his way or he becomes your enemy. And then listen to the explanation. It's found in verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Did you catch that? See, some in Israel were worshiping God as they understood him, rather than in the way in which he had dictated they must. And that's called idolatry. And behind all idols are the demons. Now to Deuteronomy 32, 17. In discussing the problem with idolatry, Moses said, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. 
And, you know, we know that a statue is simply made of stone. It's nothing at all. And we need to walk by stone statues and trinkets and objects considered to have power. And we need to deal with them with a great deal of confidence. I mean, demons don't just jump off of them and eat us alive. We are free in Christ. Our God reigns. We need not fear. But behind those statues links the entrapment of the human heart the love of idols, the love of anything outside of the love of the one true God, and behind all the illicit things that our soul desires lurk the demons of hell who seek to drag us from the one true God. See, what started in Corinth as a matter of freedom, I can eat a meal in the temples for idols or nothing, ends up being a matter of safeguarding what your soul loves and remaining truly free. For no one who is led astray by idols is ever free for long, whether it be the sexual passions around the temple or the false teachings that were so attractive or the greed to always have or the manipulation of objects. The entire nature of idolatry is seductive and seeks to drag us from the one true God who doesn't just want but demands our loyalty. And so do you want to be free and remain free? If you do, turn your back on demons and cling to the one true God. Oh, Father, give us a heart that might desire you above all things so that we might only desire that which is good for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. John, this is likely not a subject that is touched on very much from the pulpit but I think an important one, a critical one, in fact, because it talks about freedom. What are we free to do? What are we free not to do? I mean, uh, you know, we we all seek out this big thing called freedom, which allows us all types of liberties uh, to even worship in different ways. But in reality, what are we being freed to do? Yeah, I, I love this statement that comes from Augustine, who said, love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want to do. So that's freedom. But I think it's all premised on this. When the Spirit of God comes to live within us, my heart is fully directed towards loving God, and I can now freely choose to love him. The the difficulties that we have in life is that some of the choices that we might make will cut in onto that pure love of God and distract us and bring elements into our heart that drag us back into slavery. And if we are free, we'll want to divest ourselves of anything that interferes with this this ongoing pursuit and hunger after the living God who's everything. Freedom for the sake of the gospel. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. You remind us every day. You challenge us. To ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised, and that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful, and it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of the ministry team, Dr. John, Phil, the hosts of In Doubt, thank you for all you do. To discover all the ministry resources available to you or to offer a 
financial gift to support these programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.